Hey everyone, it's time for the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. A lot of the coverage of the economic crisis these days is focused on the short term. How are the jobless numbers this month? Are we headed for another recession, maybe a second dip? Is a full recovery two years away or maybe three or so? And the assumption uh, tends to be that situations like this are a temporary aberration and that at some point economic numbers go up again and things return to normal and we all look back and say, that was tough, glad it's over. Well, today on the show we're going to question that assumption and ask, when is it really over? Do we really bounce back from deep recessions or do they change us in some way that was perhaps more lasting? In the first part of the show, I'll be talking to the journalist Don Peck, who covers the economy and American society for The Atlantic magazine. He's been thinking a lot about the above questions, and he's got a new book out on the subject. It's called Pinched, How the Great Recession Has Narrowed Our Futures and What We Can Do About It. He says that prolonged economic downturns, like the current one, take a toll, a personal, political, cultural toll that doesn't go away even after the economy finds its footing again. And he says that we need to be taking more action to limit the damage and cut our losses or perhaps pay a price for decades hence. Though he says that politically right now, we may be doing the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. And then in the second half of the show, a somewhat less bleak outlook from economist Stephen Rose. He argues that some of the gloomier predictions going around these days are maybe overstated and that America can and will overcome its troubles. But he agrees that we need to be doing more to make that happen, to spur recovery, and that policy-wise we may be headed in exactly the wrong direction. How deep is the hole, and how do we climb out of it? That is the subject of today's 7th Avenue Project. All right, time for part one of today's show, a conversation with Don Peck, author of Pinched, How the Great Recession Has Narrowed Our Futures and What We Can Do About It. Well, Don, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Was this book um, as depressing to write as it was for me to read? <laughs> well, I mean, it it, uh, it it was at times. I mean, I spent a lot of time with uh, with people who'd been unemployed for a year or more, two years, uh, you know, throughout the country, and 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 uh, and you know, it's it's hard to hear the struggles of those people at times, but. You know, I also think it's very important to hear those struggles at a time like this uh, because it focused me and, and I hope my book will focus readers on the urgency of uh, recovering from this period as, as quickly as possible. Well, we're going to get to that message, but first let's uh, survey the damages. And um, I would say that at least one thesis of this book is that recessions, the impacts of recessions last long after the GDP recovers and, and the recession is officially over. That's right. You know, particularly for, for long, deep recessions, uh, they really do have enduring consequences. They leave society changed for many years and in some ways many decades. Um, when, when people are unemployed, um, you know, their family life changes. Uh, communities marked by high unemployment change significantly and, and, and don't often simply spring back when the good times return. And 
perhaps most significantly, the character of up-and-coming generations can change very significantly and permanently in periods like this one. You know, we saw that in the Depression. We saw it in a different kind of way in, in the 1970s. And I think we're definitely seeing it again today with the millennial generation. Well, you've just listed some of the impacts uh, that you discuss in the book and a few others. A widening of the wealth gap between rich and poor, all kinds of unhealthy sort of tendencies in society are heightened, uh, racial socioeconomic tensions, regional uh, hostility, fear, xenophobia, you know, scapegoating of immigrants, all these things are brought up in the book. Um, is your surmise about all this based purely on studies of past recessions? Well, in part, uh, I, I, a lot of what I did in Pinched was I looked at three similar periods, periods at least that were similar in some ways. Um, because, you know, when we look at recent recessions, before this one, the, the past 20 years of recessions, we'd experienced only uh, quick, shallow recessions. But, you know, when you look at the 1970s, the 1930s, the 1890s, you see periods where, you know, there were large crashes and then uh, growth was weak and unemployment high for many, many years thereafter. So I do look pretty deeply at those periods and, and look at what happened. And I also look at, at sociology. You know, there, there, there's really an abundant literature um, in economics and in sociology um, as to how people change during unemployment and, and how cohorts change, for instance, when they come out of school uh, and into the job market in a weak economy. So it's a combination of, of academic research, history, and then my own reporting around the country to see you know, how families and young people and older people are actually experiencing these times. Well, there's no doubt that people are suffering right now, but, but I think the, the larger point your book makes is that, that suffering or, or disadvantages of various kinds can um, survive uh, for decades after, and that's the scariest message. Um, now, I know you have a hopeful note at the end that maybe we can do some things to, to, to at least alleviate some of that harm, but that harm is, is a very real threat to our society, uh, according to your book. Um, now, one thing I think that, that the popular imagination has taken away from the lore surrounding previous recessions or depressions, like the Great Depression, is that they strengthened us in some, in some way. Yes, the suffering during the Great Depression was enormous and it lasted for many years. An entire decade uh, you know, was lost to the country in some ways. But then after that, America sprang back stronger than ever. We had the post-war boom, lots of prosperity all kinds of socioeconomic indicators getting better. And, and maybe the same thing could be said about the, the 1890s recession. I mean, uh, it, was, it was a bad time, but after that, the U.S. got even stronger and became sort of a world leader and an industrial giant. Um, should, should we disabuse ourselves of any such you know, sort of uh, optimistic uh, notions about this recession, that it will actually result in some positive changes? Well, I think there will be, you know, some positive changes, perhaps. I, I, I mean, I, it's it's correct to say that um, that the depression, for instance, uh, you know, did leave us with with kind of a, a sense of thrift, you know, in this country that lasted for for a generation and really was only undone by the long inflation of the 1970s. I think that stood society in good stead. And if you look, for instance, at adolescence in particular. 
during the Depression. Adolescents in particular really seemed, oddly enough, to benefit from the experience. They were coddled less, they were counted on for more, um, and, and yet they, they suffered no psychological scars because they really couldn't be blamed for their family's struggles. So, so what we see in that generation, which did become the greatest generation, was you know for, for the rest of their lives, um, they were particularly uh, family-oriented, civic-minded, um, they were able to defer gratification, and they had a, a particular can-do attitude. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to imply that everything about this period will leave us weaker. That hasn't happened in the past. However, it is certainly correct to say that periods like these do overwhelmingly leave societies weaker on net. Um, you know, one reason for that is human capital is really the most important asset uh, that any economy has, and periods like this one slowly drain that away. You see that most acutely with regard to the unemployed themselves. You know, people who are out of work for six months, a year, two years, um, you know, their, their skills erode, their behavior sometimes changes, changes. Um, they experience kind of psychological damage that, that, that often never fully goes away. Um, and over time, they find it harder and harder to get back into the workforce at all. Uh, sometimes the economy simply shrunken somewhat, just moves on without them. You see it with young people as well. There's abundant scholarly research that shows that the first few years in the job market are extremely important to setting one's career track. And for instance, the cohort that came out in the early 80s in the depths of a, of a steep but, but short-lived recession, you know, not only did they start out behind, but they never fully caught up to where they otherwise would have been over a period of two or three years of weakness where they couldn't find jobs or could only find bad jobs, they acquired a stigma with employers that they never fully shed. You write that uh, studies show that no other circumstance produces a larger decline in mental health and well-being than being involuntarily out of work for six months or more. Yeah, happiness researchers have have uh, looked at kind of various life events and uh, and kind of cataloged what they do to people's sort of daily sense of well-being. And um, in fact, it, it, it really is about the worst thing that can happen to you. It's, it's equivalent more or less to the death of a spouse. And, uh, and it's a sort of bereavement in its own right. And, you know, I, I think men in particular, middle-aged men most of all, um, they derive so much of their identity and self-worth from work that when it goes away, they, they feel lost at sea. Their, their whole self-image of, of what they are, who they are, what they can accomplish, really can change quite radically. Um, you mentioned a stigma, and uh, this reminds me of something I read in your book, that um, some employers out there have been posting job notices that essentially say, no unemployed people need apply. In other words, if you're unemployed, forget about it. it only if you have a job can you apply for this job. Is that very common? Uh, it's it's becoming more common. Um, those those notices do appear and have been appearing for for about a year or more. And and um, uh, I, I talked to uh, someone at Adeco, which is a uh, a staffing firm, um, who who said that this this seems to be uh, becoming more common uh, as well. So it, it is becoming commonplace. And I you know I I think that's in part 
simply a reflection of how bad the job market is. Employers can afford to do that. It's a buyer's market in many ways. But but again, uh, this is something that I think could portend something more permanent. Um, temporary unemployment does become permanent after a time. Uh, once once the unemployed begin to acquire this this sort of stink about them, uh, you know whether real or imagined, employers simply assume that they have personal or professional dysfunction. Uh, they they ignore them. Instead, they they look to currently unemployed workers and bid up the wages uh, of those workers. You you mentioned the gender difference a, a moment ago, and this recession you say has hit men particularly hard. Three quarters of the job losses were experienced by men, not women. And in fact, as a result of that, partly uh, women um, as a as a percentage of the workforce have been growing uh, and even crossing the 50% line at various points during the recession, yeah? That's right. Uh, During the recession, for the first time in American history, women became, uh, for a time at least, the majority of the workforce. Now, recessions are always somewhat harder on men than on women because men tend to be concentrated in occupations like construction and manufacturing, which are highly cyclical and which certainly collapsed in this recession. Women tend to work um, uh, uh, in fields like healthcare and, and education, uh, more commonly, you know, which which are somewhat resistant to recessions. But but this really is the acceleration of a long-term phenomenon as well. Um, you know, as we've moved from an industrial to a post-industrial economy, a meaningful minority of men has really struggled. Uh, and as blue-collar jobs have been lost. Uh, what men have been doing in the long run has been simply slowly moving out of the workforce. Let's turn our attention to uh, the income gap. As I understand it, um, incomes in America had been narrowing for many decades after the 1940s, uh, such that wealth was more evenly distributed across the population, big middle class growing and all that, and then started widening again in what uh, Paul Krugman and others have called the Great Divergence, starting in the 70s. And that's been picking up steam, and this latest recession has only pushed the upper crust further up and the the bottom 90% or so further down. Is, is that right? That is. That's exactly correct. And it's, it's uh, highly unusual. You know, in recessions, inequality usually falls, but in this recession, it has not. It widens somewhat. And as we've begun a, a partial recovery, what we've seen is uh, incomes have come back at the top of the economy. We certainly see that on Wall Street. Um, you know, hedge fund managers are making more now than they did in 2007. Uh, we see wages growing rapidly in Manhattan and Silicon Valley, uh, although they're flat nationwide. Um, and and we see we generally see kind of the power cities and creative enclaves that um, that are populated by America's best educated, um, best skilled workers coming back. We don't see that across the rest of the U.S. Why do you think that this recession actually, uh, in many cases, made the rich richer and the poor poorer? Well, again, I mean, in part, it's it's merely an acceleration of, of a trend that was already happening. You know, the, the trend towards the technological substitution of, of, of labor, um, you know, in, in manufacturing, in routine office work, um, that has tended to really hurt workers with high school educations, but not college or professional degrees. Um, the work that they've traditionally done 
often can now be done by machines. It can also be done by an increasingly educated workforce in China, India, and elsewhere. And and that has been hollowing the middle class slowly for many years. The non-professional middle class in particular has seen significant wage pressure over 10 or 20 years. Um, so so the, 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 the kind of biggest forces running through the economy have really not been friendly overall to non-professional middle-class Americans uh, for for many years now. And, and it's important, I think, to remember that people with a high school degree but not a bachelor's degree make up 60% of the U.S. population. Um, before we get deeper into the discussion of, of the wealth gap, the income gap in America, I just wanted to quote some figures. And, and tell me if you like these figures, because there are a lot of them out there. Uh, that point to, to a widening chasm between uh, the rich at the very, very top and uh, the middle class and poor at the other end. But um, one one group of figures that's been making the rounds lately is from the Institute for Policy Studies. It says the bottom half of Americans, and I'm not sure what year the data that this is based on come from, but it's recent. Bottom half of Americans own only about 2.5% of the total wealth. The top half, uh, therefore, owns 97.5%. And of that group, the top 1% owns a full third of the wealth. In other words, if you were to graph this, you'd see this rather shallow climb up from poverty through the middle class and then this steep rise toward the upper percentiles who have the vast majority of wealth. Uh, I can't comment on those specific figures, but generally that sounds that sounds exactly right to me. Um, the, uh, the top 1%, 10% of society... Uh, owns an enormous percentage of, of the country's wealth and earns an enormous percentage of, of the country's income. And, and that's only been uh, becoming more pronounced in recent years. So from 2002 to 2007, for instance, just before the recession hit, for every $3 of income growth in the U.S., two of those dollars was captured by the top 1% of earners. The other dollar was split among the bottom 99% of Americans. So, so what we're seeing is really extraordinary today. You know, a group of Citibank analysts in, in 2006 referred to the economy, the emerging economy, as a plutonomy in which not only wealth but, but annual income was completely dominated by a wealthy elite. Spending was dominated by a wealthy elite. And they said, you know, the economy really was uh, uh, becoming something that one could characterize as the rich and the rest. And certainly for the purposes of making investment decisions and thinking about stock prices, they said the rest simply didn't matter. <laughs> uh, pay attention to the plutonomy, not the overall economy, if you want to make money, in other words. You know, there's exactly. a, a, a similar study. Uh, it was done by, uh, commissioned by Advertising Age. I was just reading it the other day. And uh, they were looking particularly at the effects on people who market luxury goods and where they should be aiming their efforts. And they said, simply put, as the discrepancy between rich and poor has become more and more stark, a small plutocracy of wealthy elites drives a larger and larger share of total consumer spending. It appears that mass affluence may be a thing of the past. Luxury marketers should now look to appeal to consumers who value high quality and exclusivity. In other words, if you're selling expensive items, just, just worry about the rich and, and not about the um, newly flush middle class because there are fewer and fewer of them to worry about. Well, I, I, unfortunately, I, I think that's largely correct. You know, uh, Gallup also released some data recently, and, it, and what it showed is uh, over the last two years, um, 
pretty much all of the consumer recovery, such as we've had, um, has been driven by the top 20% of society. Um, daily spending by the bottom 80% has been completely flat, no growth whatsoever. Um, spending has risen by about 16% uh, in, in the top 20%. So what we've seen is recovery for the affluent, no recovery for everyone else. And, you know, I, I think that if you look at the last decade, you know, this shouldn't be surprising. Wages did not grow for median Amer for the median American, for typical Americans uh, throughout the aughts. There was no wage growth whatsoever. But the housing bubble for a time simply hid that phenomenon. People felt wealthier. They took on more debt, expecting that rising housing prices could make up the difference and they thought they were making progress. But the recession really blew that fig leaf away, and it's revealed a very stark division in American society, one that unaddressed, I think, really threatens the American idea. Um, now, one one can see, you know, a process that you say has been going on for a long time for a variety of reasons, some of which you cited. That is the increasing premium put on uh, technical skills that only a small percentage of the population has, and therefore they, they profit disproportionately. And larger markets, again, increasing uh, the returns on their efforts as opposed to everyone else's. But I can also imagine that a recession would help the already affluent in a lot of ways. They can buy low when, you know, the market drops, right? And I don't just mean the stock market. I mean, say, the housing market, buy up foreclosed properties, and then sell high as the market recovers and actually make a tidy profit off of the swings that uh, people with no cash and no ability to take advantage of that situation certainly can't do. That's right. You know, an economist at Oxford, Anthony Atkinson, who's an expert on, on inequality, has looked at um, wealth in the wake of, of recessions and particularly major financial crises you know, worldwide. And, and what he's found is that typically, as recovery has set in, um, the rich have actually uh, increased their their percentage of um, the wealth held by by the local economy um, and and, that, and that's exactly the reason they have more cash reserves um, they are in some cases more financially savvy and they can buy low and, and sell high and and Atkinson told me you know he, he thought he saw evidence of that happening in this recovery as well. As he told me, Mr. Buffett's been investing, and that's exactly right. <laughs> and he's made no secret of it. He's advised people that if they have money, they should invest at those times. And I, I know that I, I've seen examples of people going to foreclosure auctions, uh, people who happen to have a lot of cash, and just buying them up and flipping those houses pretty quickly, uh, bringing them back on the market uh, with a, a nice profit margin. So yes, there are a lot of opportunities if you have a lot of cash. Um, one effect of all this has been the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, but the middle class getting poorer as well. And I know you've, you've thought a lot about that. In fact, um, in the current issue of The Atlantic, you have an article called uh, Can the Middle Class Be Saved? And then you had kind of a roundtable with um, your colleague at The Atlantic, James Fallows, plus the economist Tyler Cohen and the sociologist Maria Kafalis. Um, what's the upshot of that exchange you guys had and, and has it changed your your worries that the middle class may in fact be destined for if not extinction at least great great shrinkage in America well I you know in that conversation I think we we all agreed on uh, on a number of things you know one is that you know, the American middle class 
one shouldn't overstate it. I mean, it's hardly ruined as a class today. We're, we're an extremely wealthy society. At the same time, though, a sense of progress is, is very important in life, and I think that is being lost, um, you know, with each year that we don't recover. As I already noted, the last decade has not been kind to the American middle class. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that um, I took away from our kind of online conversation, uh, my conversation with Jim and Tyler and Maria, is we were all somewhat skeptical given the, the political environment, given the culture of the U.S. right now, um, that that enough Americans are, are really willing to uh, make the sacrifices that uh, one might need to make to try to build a stronger middle class, rebuild the middle class, particularly for the non-college population um, in the future. Uh, certainly, if you look at uh, very recent politics, w- we seem to be you know, moving in a direction that is likely to prolong the recession um, and, and worsen the division between the affluent and and everyone else, uh, not towards uh, a, a broadly shared recovery. Well, let me jump in there. You said people might not be willing to make the sacrifices, but when you talk about those uh, policy decisions being made right now that may worsen things, you're talking about austerity, right? Belt tightening. So what sacrifices right. do you mean that we should be making right now, if not... Uh, paying down the debt and uh, deleveraging, as they like to call it, and uh, and again tightening our belts. Well, I mean, I think when you look at the debt, you know, you need to separate out two different things. And one is, you know, the long-term path of of the debt, which is extremely troubling, and which is actually driven in in large part by the growth of entitlements like Medicare. Um, you know, then you need to look at at the short term, uh, in which unemployment is 9% and, uh, and and consumers are rebuilding their balance sheets and can't spend. You know, what we should be doing today is uh, stimulating the economy in the short run, providing uh, direct government jobs, um, and, and, and running large deficits to support the economy until consumers have rebuilt their finances, and pairing that um, that that spending today with binding commitments to significantly reduce the debt in the future through a combination of spending cuts, including entitlement cuts and tax increases. You know what we're doing is is really just the opposite. We're we're avoiding difficult decisions on Medicare, on tax rates, um, and instead we're in in small ways um, cutting the budget today. Uh, cutting programs for the most part um, that benefit poor Americans, um, you know, not voting Americans, and and that's that's really exactly the wrong strategy. You know, I would argue that uh, we need to make a lot of new investments, uh, investments in in infrastructure, um, investments in innovation. You know, breakthrough innovation. We need to, to to increase our investment in education as well. You know, these are things that over time can provide a, a more stable base for the economy, a broader base for the economy, and a better future for middle class children. But they do involve investment, and they 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 involve sacrifices. Well, well, now at least one uh, growing meme, you know, in the political sphere is that we tried that, we did it. It was the called the. Um, 
The American Recovery and Investment Act. <laughs> Very good. It was called the American Investment and Recovery Act, better known as the stimulus under President Obama. And people are saying it didn't work. You know, they shoved hundreds of billions uh, into the economy. There might have been a brief uptick, uh, or, or let's not call it an uptick. Let's just say less of a decline in employment, uh, less of a decline in GDP than we might have otherwise seen. But that all wore off, and we're back to square one. Do you argue with that? Well, I think it has worn off, and and to some extent we're we're perhaps not back to square one, but but we've taken a step backwards as a result. Look, you know, stimulus and government support. Uh, they're not panaceas. We know that recovery from major financial crises are usually slow. And, and what we're seeing, you know, in addition to these longer term forces that we've been talking about, what we're seeing right now is simply consumers who can't spend because they became extremely indebted in the aughts and they're now paying down those debts. You know, and, and when you look at consumer indebtedness, that's going to take a, another couple of years. So, so the initial stimulus, it didn't return us to robust growth, but it probably prevented a depression. Um, and, and as you noted, that stimulus has gradually worn off. And what's happened is that growth has faltered more and more, and now we look like we may be on the verge of another recession. We need a continuation of government support, um, uh, you know, putting cash in people's pockets, you know, allowing them to pay down debts faster. We need government policies that create jobs directly, I would say, for at least another couple of years. You know, at that point, Consumers will have rebuilt their finances to some extent, and we can kind of wean ourselves off of government support. Um, but this view that the stimulus didn't work because it didn't magically and immediately return us to you know 3% growth a year and 5% unemployment is, is really myopic and, and simply does not consider uh, the, 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 the size of the shock we've had and, and the debt problem that consumers are facing today. I should say that the uh, Congressional Budget Office and, and some other studies as well estimate that the uh, stimulus definitely uh, increased uh, output, that is GDP, by several percentage points and saved millions of jobs. And, um, and though the popular conception might be that when that money runs out, the whole system falls back to where it was before, that's really not the that's not the idea behind a stimulus. In fact, a, a stimulus, you know, theoretically at least, revs up the economy and that engine continues to uh, to speed up. You know, the ball gets rolling and it keeps rolling as a result of the stimulus. It's not just buying uh, a temporary increase in GDP. You know, there is there is some of that, yes, because because you know when when you when you kind of put a jolt of money into the economy, um, you, you you keep people employed, you create new job growth. You know that that can kind of have a snowball effect, and it can also increase people's confidence in in the economy. So so there can be this kind of positive you know positive effect, but but in part, I mean, stimulus is also uh, to some degree temporary, um, but. It's still appropriate in in a world where consumers are are rebuilding their finances. I mean, the government does have longer debt horizons than than the average consumer, and and it, it's really an appropriate role for the government to step in and support the economy when consumers are deleveraging and and rebuilding their finances. You know, that's particularly appropriate in light of the 
the long-term damage, the, the, the continuing damage that job loss has. So, so even to the extent that, that stimulus or, or government spending provide you know, temporary support for the economy, it's really necessary today because without it, you have people who are languishing longer and longer without jobs. And even once we recover, you know, if they're languishing long enough, they won't recover and the economy will be permanently shrunken. Well, I guess I, I'd say uh, a life jacket is temporary support as well, but but it can save your yeah, life. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, back to the the importance of the middle class and what it means for the country if the middle class um, declines, you know, uh, significantly as a result of this recession. First of all, a middle class is a relatively recent phenomenon historically, and it's it's kind of a fragile thing. I mean, the the, the American middle class really didn't get big until the 20th century. That's right. And, uh, you know, with the rise of industry and, and a progressive tax policy and, and progressive labor laws, you know, we saw in, in the mid-20th century, you know, really the heyday of the American middle class. That was also a time when education was increasing rapidly and broadly throughout the population. You know, a lot came together in the middle of the 20th century to, uh, to make that a golden age for the American middle class. And, uh, and, and we're unlikely to see a return to that environment. You know, the forces uh, that were really bolstering the, the middle class then are, to a large extent, running against them now. Such, a, such as? You know, I think market forces are actually working against the middle class more now than they were in the 20th century. You know, Europe was devastated following World War II. Um, China, India had not risen. So what what the U.S. had in the mid-20th century was the most educated workforce in the world and really little international competition. But it is also true that there were purely political forces, um, uh, a more progressive income tax uh, structure, for instance, um, more support for training and workforce development for people coming out of high school, not just for college education. Um, you know, these were political forces uh, that, that, that we, we've simply uh, changed today, um, that we've reversed today, and, and we could recapture them. And, and that, that would help um, the non-professional middle class in particular. There, there is a lot that we could do politically to really make the lives of um, high school graduates more comfortable, more predictable, and more upwardly mobile today. We're just not doing them. High school graduates, not necessarily pushing for more people to go to college? We should, of course, continue to push for more people to go to college, um, and and I would advise anyone, any of your listeners who's considering college, uh, to to go if 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 you think it's right for you. You know, there's this there's this sense in the media sometimes today that uh, maybe a college degree isn't worth it. People said that in the depression too. They were wrong then, and they're wrong now. In fact, a college degree, uh, the return on a college degree is about as high today as it's ever been. And for college graduates, you know, what we're seeing is is largely a temporary problem. You know, it, it's a rough few years for, for a lot of people, but the economy will eventually mend to some extent, and, and college graduates in particular will be just fine. Uh, but in addition to trying to continue to widen college access, we really need to begin to uh, build more pathways into the middle class for people who don't go to college or who don't 
finish college. Uh, one way is by doing something that that Germany has has done very successfully to uh, preserve its middle class and and keep it strong, and, and that is to offer people um, apprenticeships and vocational training and trade skill training during high school, along with classroom education. Um, you know, we, we've been uh, listing some of the ills caused by recessions. Are there any positive consequences? I mean, one thing that's that's interesting and surprising to a lot of people is that crime hasn't gone up during this one. In fact, maybe crime has even gone down a little bit. Is that right? It has. It has. And, and that's a puzzle. Um, I, I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, uh, you know, Xbox, perhaps. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but um, but no. I mean, you know, when you look at when you look at the changes to society during recessions, one of the one of the points I try to uh, illustrate in Pinched is, you know, there are some changes that are negative. There are some that are positive. In many senses, society is simply transformed. Uh, You know, people sleep more during recessions. They date less. They spend more time at home. People drive less and more slowly. And as a result, traffic fatalities usually decline along Mm. with total mortality. And Mm -hmm. I believe that has happened in this recession as Mm. well. Um, uh, you know, skirts famously lengthen, and <laughs> pop songs, Lady Gaga aside, you know, typically become more earnest, more complex, more romantic, yet yet less sexual. So, so the changes to society are really they're very complex and and rich and interesting, and and there are positives as well. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, when I when I talk to young people today, um, I, I really do think that. You know, their attitudes are changing, including in ways that, that I think, you know, will help them in the long run. They, they, they have a different relationship to money now. And um, I really do think that we will see a generation that, that values thrift more coming out of this recession, which is, which is really likely to stand them in good stead throughout their, their lifetimes. People are getting more education today. Young people are going to school and staying in school um, more uh, because the economy is so weak, and 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 that will stand some people in in better stead today. And and what we often see um, in the wake of of recessions like this is also more entrepreneurialism because you know people need to be more entrepreneurial. They're they're thrown out of jobs in large corporate bureaucracies where perhaps their ideas were being ignored. So so sometimes we see the rate of innovation rise uh, following periods like this one. So, so you know, I, I don't think that the changes that are occurring today are, are all bad. And, and I think it's also really important to emphasize that, you know, we have come through periods like this one before, um, and, and we can do that again today. Um, but, you know, we need to make that happen, and, and, and we need to do some things, you know, politically to, to make that happen. Hmm. Well, the political climate at the moment doesn't really seem favorably disposed to some of the remedies that you're pushing right now. I mean, how are you feeling about things right now? Well, I, I, I am discouraged by uh, recent political developments. And, um, you know, the move to austerity that the debt ceiling deal signals 
is highly misplaced. It will extend this period uh, if we go through with it. Um, we do need more stimulus today. We need more infrastructure spending, which could put uh, out-of-work construction workers and manufacturing workers to work directly. Um, we need an extension of the payroll tax cut. You know, we need more support for the unemployed. We are we are moving away from these things, not towards them. And and I find that discouraging. But I I think all we can do. As, as citizens is um, to push against these developments and to tell our elected officials um, that we do not support uh, the direction that they have been taking us in recent months and that we do want uh, a more aggressive response to the jobs crisis and real efforts to try to get us out of this period more quickly. Well, Don, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Don Peck, features editor of The Atlantic magazine and the author of Pinched, how the Great Recession Has Narrowed Our Futures and What We Can Do About It. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. And today, as the country continues to struggle through the worst economic slump in a very long time, we're asking about the long-term impacts. How the Great Recession, as it's now known, might change us for years or even decades to come, even after a recovery happens, if and when it happens. And uh, in the interest of sounding out a range of perspectives on that subject, after talking to Don Peck, I went looking for an economist with a somewhat contrasting view. I found Stephen Rose of Georgetown University. He came out with a book in 2009 called Rebound, Why America Will Emerge Stronger from the Crisis. And though he now believes a recovery may take a bit longer than he initially thought, you can still count him in the optimist camp. He still thinks America will bounce back as strong as ever. So if I put you and uh, Nuriel Rubini in the same room, do you annihilate each other like matter and antimatter? I don't know about that. I mean, uh, we can disagree civilly. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, they, there's a real attraction to the negative story. Everyone thinks there's stagnation, the decline of America. If you remember in the 1980s, everyone was talking about Japan being number one. And then Lester Thoreau, a very famous economist who's had a Sloan School of Business at MIT, wrote a book on once uni- Europe united, the U.S. was not only going to be not number one, it was going to be number three behind a combined, behind Japan and a combined Europe. Well, well, just because the declinists, if we can call them that, this habit of thinking that uh, you know America's best days are over, just because they've been wrong in the past doesn't mean they couldn't be right this time, does it? I mean, should we really um, look to past examples, or are there some maybe new features uh, of this recession and of America's position in the world that, that really aren't like those other times? There's no question that you should use the past judiciously. I mean, it's really the first place you should start, but you always should say, are there factors that are different? And the factors that are different about the size of the United States and um, the infrastructure of, league, of a great judicial system that allows businesses to make contracts and settle disputes, the infrastructure of the great universities, it hasn't changed in this time period. You know, I made that joke at the beginning about you and Nuriel Rubini. He's famously known as Dr. Doom, and uh, from what I've read of your work, I mean, you tend to have a much more hopeful outlook about the future of the United States, even in the face of this current uh the current hard times. In fact, you are the author of Rebound, Why America Will Emerge Stronger from the Crisis, uh, which came out in 2009, right? Correct. Um, 
how are those predictions going so far? <laughs> Not that well. I mean, I didn't put a date on it. Um, I was, but I did put a date at later after the book came out. I mean, it, I, I'm I try to be intellectually honest, and in that in July first, in 2010, I said the unemployment rate would drop to 8.0 by December 2011. So that's wrong. I mean. Uh, I underestimated, um, you know, Reinhardt and Rogoff did this study looking at the history of financial crises over 200 countries over 200 years, and they said that recessions set off by financial uh, collapses tend to take 4.5 years to recover. And uh, I thought that the U.S. might have enough infrastructure to overcome that, but it turns out that There are many more things clogging up the system than I saw. Mm -hmm. So economics 101, you learn that GDP equals consumption plus investment plus government spending. Yeah. So as of today, and actually as of, you know, the last 6 to 12 months, total real consumption is greater today than it was before the recession. Okay? We are consuming slightly more than we did before the recession. Per capita? Per capita. That's something that's not really talked about a whole lot. What's down in C plus I plus G is I, is investment. And what's down inside I predominantly is residential construction. And it's really residential construction that, you know, A is, it's down like close to $500 billion, and it has a slightly ripple effect. If it were ever to get going, you know, then it would, you know, it's just taken... You know, this is a financial crisis at the same time that there was a housing bubble. Right. And those two have have turned out to be just deadly components of moving forward from, you know, the recession was officially called to end in, you know, December 2009. Right. I mean, think I have egg in my face. These people have to, you know, be told over and over again, you called, we're in a recovery. Right. Well, you know, I wasn't really trying to uh, nail you for a a, a prediction that was off um, by, say, a percentage point in in terms of unemployment, um, because obviously nobody should be expected to predict those things accurately. Um, but, but, But you do temperamentally fall in the optimist category, I can see, because even now, uh, two years after the book came out, you, you had an article in the New Republic just this past week, um, What's So Bad About a Slow Economic Recovery? Uh, and uh, the gist of that article is we are recovering. It's just happening gradually. It's, we're not going back to a boom anytime soon, it looks like. Well, again, the Depression uh, was characterized by Roosevelt saying one-third of the people go, go, to, go to bed hungry. You know, w- what is bad? I mean, we talk about the Japanese lost decade, and it's actually turned out to be lost two decades. Yeah, yeah. Yet, Japan has a high standard of living. Uh, Japan is still considered a world economic superpower, and it hasn't grown in 20 years. Now, mind you, I think Japan has long-term problems, and it has to do with aging. Japan, to its credit, has a great health care system, and people live a long time. To its detriment, they have a very low birth rate. Therefore, everyone's going to end up retired, and Japan, to its unbelievable craziness, um, doesn't, doesn't allow immigration. I mean, this is a, a, a disaster waiting to happen. The United States has never been like that. Mm-hmm. So let's look at, more closely at the current recession. 
which by a lot of accounts has, you know, caused all this problems and has all these people uh, a Twitter about how this is the sign, this is the sign that America empire is in decline and America will be a third-rate power soon with massive uh, economic dislocations. The maximum decline of median income during this recession was 4.3 or 4.4 percent. The maximum increase in the poverty rate, or even if you say that the poverty rate is too low and look at twice the poverty rate and say that that's poor and near poor, you know, went from just increased by two percentage points. The, this recession is unusual in the sense of the decline in GDP uh, usually follows a relationship to the increase in unemployment. And the decline in GDP in this recession should not normally lead to this increase in the amount of unemployment. So this is an unusual recession vis-a-vis the unemployment statistics, which are indeed... Um, you know, a sign of economic pain, and if you lose your job, you're in big trouble. We should not try to minimize that this is for a, a standard of living that we have, the growing concentration pain at the bottom of the income ladder um, is something that we should be doing more about, honestly. Um, before we get to what we should be doing, um, let's take a closer look at some of the things you just mentioned. Now, I, I recently um, interviewed Don Peck, uh, the reporter for The Atlantic, about his book, uh, which is called Pinched, How the Great Recession Has Narrowed Our Futures and What We Can Do About It. And he has a long list of impacts that are distressing and that are the kinds of things that, that can last for a long time. Uh, the psychological effects of being unemployed, of long-term unemployment. Uh, some people seem never to recover from that. The effect on people who are of a certain age when they enter the workforce uh, during hard times and can't find jobs and how that undermines you know, confidence and life prospects later in their lives. Um, wealth inequality. Now, now, a lot of people have been talking about how uh, this recession following on the heels of 20, 30 years uh, of uh, of shifts has has sort of driven a, an even larger wedge between uh, the middle classes and the poor on the one hand and the rich on the other hand. There is pain in recessions. There's no question about that. In particular, the unemployed face a kind of paradox in the sense of the longer they're unemployed, the more they look bad to employers, and it's harder to get a job. Yes. So I've done data that show that the unemployed rehiring rate goes up as you get unemployed longer. Em- employers look at the fact that you've been unemployed as a sign of it's, there's something about you that shows that you have low skills and we shouldn't look at you even though you look good on paper. Yeah, yeah. And that's a bad thing, yes. number one. Number two, there was one study that's often cited about college graduates and how if they enter in a recession, they will be hurt for many years to come. Right. That study was based on 500 cases in one recession. Um, There's another study based on a much bigger data set in Canada that didn't find that. Now, I'm sorry, but I'm not convinced by that finding. So I don't think that's a robust finding yet. We may find it's robust, but it's been cited so many times and uh, 
one should go back to the source. And, and, and so you don't buy some of the figures, though, getting back to uh, the wealth gap. You don't buy some of the figures that seem to show... Well, again, it, it, we have too much inequality. Let's start with that. The issue is, is it just going crazy over and over, up and up and up? Now, I've been involved in a long debate over the last five years of the growth of median income. How has the middle class done? There is a storyline that is supported by many of the same people who are now declinists that have argued that the standard of living of the middle class has not gone up at all in real terms, in absolute terms, not relative terms, right. since 1980. And they would argue that virtually all the growth has gone to the top 10%. That's mm-hmm. an argument that's been repeated over and over again. Right. Myself and a number of other studies have tried to say we really should compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. What has happened over time is household size has gotten much, much smaller. More people, not in the middle of this recession, but from 1980 through, you know, 2007, more young adults moved out. There are more single adults raising children. There are fewer children per household off also in, a, in some of the parts of the population. A lot of our economic resources have been shifted to health care, which is not counted as part of your income, even though you consume those services. In an economics point of view, what matters is your services that you, can, you, uh, you consume, such that what I find and other people find somewhat closely, if you try to make adjustments for the factors that I talked about, the median income grew by 32% over the, dec- over the decades that people said that it was flat. Hmm. But that uh, doesn't offset the fact that inequality is up. The people at the top grew by 60, and depending on whether you look at right. the very top, they, grew by, they doubled or tripled, you know, the notion of these hedge funds. There are a small number of them, and we shouldn't have this level of inequality. But the notion that there's been no growth shared, in my mind, doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, the notion that we're living the same standard of living, in my mind, uh, A, is on its face a crazy idea, and B, if you ask people, you ask people, we ask people, there's a thing called the General Social Survey that's going on every two years for the last, like, 40 years. So they've asked the same question for the last 40 years, and they've asked a series of other questions. So it's a really good survey, and they ask people, Compared to your parents at the same age, do you live better, the same, or worse? There is no trend in that, basically. It varies a little bit, but basically somewhere about 60% say they live better than their parents, and then somewhere around 25% say they live the same, and 15% say they live worse. I thought the number who said they're living worse uh, has grown recently. Um, again, there are different surveys. Uh-huh. I was citing the general social survey. Right. There's other questions that have been changed. Will your children live better than you? That number right now is down. I didn't see uh, it on the GSS. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, you know, there are new data points, and I may miss one. But by and large, when we have done real studies uh, about that, um, if you think, if you ask people what, what do they take for granted and what's important in their lives, They'll look around and they'll say, I've got a computer, I've got, I got this fancy TV, i got my cell phone, and wait a second, did my parents have any of this? <laughs> I mean, that's economic growth. 
Yeah. Um, Steve, now if we could enter speculative territory for a moment and, and look to the future, it's true that the big recessions in the past in the U.S. were followed by recoveries and even, uh, you know, boom times in some cases. The foundation for some of that, as I understand it, was the fact that the U.S. educational system was able to prepare people for new uh, technological realities and, and changes in society that allowed them to really seize advantages and, and grow once again uh, and, and for things to become prosperous. Now, again, there are people who say it's different this time around, that we really aren't coping educationally in the way that we did in the past, that our primary and secondary schools aren't doing a good job of preparing workers for the best compensated jobs these days, for the new jobs that are coming down the pike, that college tuition is pricing a lot of people out of the college market or, or saddling them with huge uh, college loan debts when they get out of college, that, that our system's really not doing what it did in the past to make recovery robust. Well, first of all, we should emphasize it's not just the United States that grew. I mean, that, that countries interact and spur each other on. Yeah. I mean, in the post-World War II period, the growth of Germany and Japan after being devastated is just remarkable. I mean, this, that growth has not been just a U.S. thing. Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, what we have seen is a really break in 1945 from advanced powers fighting each other in kind of imperialist adventures to everyone realizing that raw, product, raw materials is not that important. We could even have the, the Middle East, you know, take control of their oil and get these huge, you know, glass cities in the middle of deserts and have all this wealth, and it didn't stop economic growth around the world. It's not a zero-sum game, number one. Right, right. What, what about two, education? A, yeah. You know, everyone talks about education. Yeah. The number of people being educated is higher than it's been before. In fact, during recessions, this recession has repeated what's happened in other recessions, and more people go to colleges. Number three, I think we need more. Uh, we came out with a paper at our Center for Education and the Workforce just uh, two months ago called The Undereducated American. I think we need more, and I think part of inequality is, by, is due to the fact that um, we haven't been producing enough uh, college graduates. Number four, I do think that K-12 system is not doing its job, and I mean the system and not necessarily the schools. That is, a large number of people come out needing remediation when they go to the college mm -hmm, level. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to make it, it will be better. You know, it strikes me in... in conversations about how badly or how well we're doing economically, it's always relative to expectations, right? I exactly. Mean, so the one reason that you're a glasses-half-full kind of guy uh, is that you believe that expectations can be reset and people's lives don't have to be destroyed simply because the big dream they had doesn't quite come true. Right. I mean, there's a funny... Uh, I have a funny personal history. I started out as a community organizer, and I started out thinking that these, these people's lives were, you know, really miserable and on the edge of, they were always on the edge of depression and um, losing their homes and losing their jobs. And uh, I did this in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, inner city Baltimore, Maryland. And I realized that, you know, there were some people like that. We have a population that's like that. I I think in good times it's more in the nature of 15% of the population that are basically permanently poor and on the edge. Uh, but uh, for 
the lower middle class uh, have much more identification with the system than some of the high-end declinists who live amongst the upper middle class. I mean, we pick up on negative numbers and explode them and make them seem like they're wider, they affect a wider uh, share of the population than they do. We have negative numbers. There are people. It's just that the, the bulk of the American middle class doesn't have, I mean, they are nervous, number one. Number two, they did take a hit. They, a lot of them took, uh, especially those that borrowed against their homes or recently bought a home, they took a big hit. But a lot of people didn't necessarily take a hit uh, in the sense of that it affected them being able to stay in their home, but they lost relative to what they thought they had. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. prices went were crazy out of the roof. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, over the last, uh, you know, t- from 1997 to, two, to 2007, people were giddy about, oh, my God, can you believe what it's told across the street? Can you believe what our house is not worth? I mean, and that, that's what was wrong. That valuation was the wrong valuation. And relative to that valuation, they are lower. But that was a crazy valuation, and uh, it's had negative consequences. And I think, you know, for the people who stayed in their homes, even if they're slightly uh, underwater or they're not underwater, they feel a little lost, but, you know, it didn't particularly change their standard of living. Um, I'd like to finish up by asking about what we should be doing. Um, you do believe that, that government can make things worse or better when it comes to recuperation. 100%. What What do you think the government should be doing, and is it? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's a big divide now. I mean, you know, uh, uh, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, it, it was uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon said, we're all Keynesians now. Well, guess what? <laughs> Forty years later, we aren't. He was quoting Milton Friedman, who didn't really mean it when he said well, it. Well, I was going to say, you know, so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, when we I had the last depression, I mean, uh, there's this uh, uh, economic profession for decades uh, believed in, Keynesian remedies. I mean, they got a bit overconfident, and the 70s were kind of a turning point in the sense of we had relatively high unemployment, it went up to 9%, and high inflation, which was thought to be a non-possibility to, to, to include those two. And inflation turned out to be uh, something that people reacted very badly to, and we had to go through a series of a deep a double dip recession in 79 and 82 uh so but so there came to be another school that kind of developed that tried to you know throw cold water on keynesianism so while keynesianism is still widely agreed on inside the profession it doesn't have 100% support by any means that there is you know certainly a strand i don't want i don't know 25% of the of the economics profession that would not consider themselves Keynesians anymore. But in general, we think that when there is a slack economy, government intervention can make it less slack. And, you know, there's been a a number of studies now on the effect of the stimulus. Most of them show that it made a big difference of saving jobs. The unemployment rate went up, that's for sure. It went up to 10%. It might have gone up to 12% without the stimulus. And it might have been even 
slower now in recovery, so we would still be at double digits without that. So if you had your hands on the levers of power, would you go the Keynesian route again? Would you add more stimulus at this point? You bet. You know, I would. You know, I think our long-term budget problem, I wouldn't say we have a spending problem. I say we have a want problem. We want to help keep uh, old people in good health and give them enough resources to live a happy life. We want to help some of the poor people. We want to get education to more and more people. We want national defense. So we want all these things, and somehow or other, we're not paying for them. I mean, that's the, it, that's the mismatch that our wants and our tax system right now is completely it. And you can't have both. I mean, uh, I believe the way out of that is to tax people more, and I believe that it's not simply those with 250000 or more. It's the, you know, the middle class on up, mm-hmm. the upper middle class on up. In the book, I say we should tax, not increase the rates on everybody the same amount, but from 75000 up. If we want the kind of services that we say we do in polls. When do you think historically we, we had the tax rates right? Was there a time when we... Well, I mean, look in the Clinton years. That was about Clinton right. years we had a surplus. Now, mind you, uh, there was... A game there, but uh, I mean that's a little co- complex thing. Uh, we weren't far off in the Clinton years. I mean, if we hadn't undone Clinton taxes, um, we could have been uh, creating surpluses for a while, and then we would have been in better shape to deal with um, uh, the crises that when it happened. Uh, but you know, we now have the lowest level of taxation in. Um, in a long time. I mean, the tax rates are... More than 50 years. How much we collect is, you know, in the order of magnitude of what we did in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, you can't spend money uh, consistently. You can for a while uh, unless you uh, do the revenue. It's just simple, you know, double-entry accounting. Well, in closing, I guess you're still the guy who who, uh, says America will emerge stronger from the crisis, to paraphrase the title of your book. Well, it'll just take longer than I thought. Well, let's hope it's not too long. Thanks a lot, Steve. No problem. Bye-bye. Stephen Rose is a research professor at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. This has been the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. So long until next week.